Jail Richardson is the author of The Stone Thrower, A Daughter's Lesson, A Father's Life, a memoir based on her relationship with her father, CFL quarterback Chuck Ely. The Stone Thrower was adapted into a children's book and was shortlisted for a Canadian Picture Book Award. Richardson is a book columnist and guest host on CBC's Q. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Guelph and lives in Brampton, Ontario, where she founded and serves as artistic director for the Festival of Literary Diversity, Bold. Her debut novel, Gutter Child, is coming January 2021 with Harper Collins Canada. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thanks for having me. What was the daughter's lesson? Mm. Yeah, so when I was working on The Stone Thrower, initially my goal for writing my memoir was to really draw attention to my dad's story. Um, he was the first black quarterback to win the Grey Cup, which is like the Super Bowl in Canada. And he had this incredible record, uh, undefeated in high school, undefeated in college, but didn't get picked up in the NFL because uh, in 1972, there were no black quarterbacks. And so I knew this story and I wanted to write that story. But I also thought what was interesting about his story was that he never talked about a lot of the things that went on behind the scenes about his childhood, about growing up in the projects, about uh, he had a brother. Uh, there was all these things that I sort of just knew pieces of, but didn't really know. And so the reason I talk about a daughter's lessons, a father's life, is because I really wanted to tie in what it was like to be raised by someone who had grown up in those kinds of circumstances, who didn't want to talk about it. And then having been raised quite privileged, I didn't understand things. And his life and unpacking it helped me figure stuff out. Particularly, I would say the thing that I wanted most from the book that I talk about at the very opening of The Stone Thrower is that I wanted to understand what it really meant to be Black in Canada and to understand where that placed me, what, what my responsibilities were, whether I should feel proud of that, what, what questions I should ask, what people I should know about. So that's really the lesson I was trying to unpack from my father's life. Like, how do you accept, take up space in a new country? Um, and how do you feel about the country that you've left, that your family has left? And the legacy, in particular in the Black community, how do you accept the legacy of slavery and the fact that you, you know, you're absent from your history? You don't really understand where you came from or, or ever get to know that. So those were all the things, just a couple light topics <laughs> that yeah. I wanted to unpack in the book. He didn't talk to you about his experience of racism or he did, or he just kept it under locks? My dad never talked about racism pretty much ever. And even when he did, he usually downplayed it. He's that guy that was sort of like, it wasn't so bad. And I remember being in university and taking a course on Black America and studying, you know, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., but also the other things that were going on, the, the activism uh, and the things that were happening, you know, at universities and on campuses across the country in the 60s and 70s. And being like, wait a second. You know, 1968 is when Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. He was doing a lot of his work in the early 60s. And I'm like, my dad was born in the 50s, which means he was 12 and he was 15, he was 16, he was 18 by the time Martin Luther King Jr. died. And so there was this moment where I started to realize, and I know maybe it sounds dumb, but 
I started to connect the fact that the history I was learning about was, was the place my parents had lived. You know, they had been in the States when this was happening. And mm. so for me, it was about like, why wouldn't you talk about that? You know, like with my son, I'll tell him about, you know, Barack Obama and, you know, all these situations that are going right now. I'm, I'm trying to be really active about those kinds of conversations. And mm. I felt like my dad, uh, not just didn't talk, but intentionally didn't want to talk about those things. Yeah, I wonder why not? Because he wanted to protect you from the ugly side of life or, or what? Yeah, I mean, I have some personal theories about it. I mean, I think there's a kind of um, like a trauma uh, that comes with being black in the States in particular. There's a kind of difficulty in the 60s in particular his dad left his mom when he was five years old and was this alcoholic who was just kind of an embarrassment in the town in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't want to say that my grandfather is an embarrassment. That's not what I mean. But I think as a child, there's sort of a shame that comes with that. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of those things were just things he didn't want to share with us. And like, I never met my grandfather. I remember when my grandfather died, I wanted to go because I wanted to see where my dad had grown up and I wanted to meet my grandfather before he passed. And my dad was like, no, <laughs> that's not, that's, I, I don't want you to, to see that. And I'm not sure if it was shame or protection or a mixture of the two, but I, I, I do think it is a mix, probably a mix of both. For me, it was just about realizing like, and, and talking with my dad when we were working on the book and then we ended up being a part of documentary about it as well, I had to really explain to my dad that that was important, that it was important for me to know who my grandfather was, good, bad, and ugly, that it was important for me to know where he came from because I was growing up and had grown up very ignorant to a lot of things. Like mm -hmm. I remember when I went to my dad's hometown for the first time, I thought my dad grew up in a black, I knew he grew up in a segregated community, like a black community in, in Ohio. And I thought it was like what I had seen in Boys in the Hood and like these black movies. I thought there was like concrete jungle, like sitting on porches, <laughs> doing all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And when I went to Portsmouth for the first time, it was like a country town. I'll give you an example. We went to the homecoming and there was this event where they had drawn a grid on the grass and there was a cow and you bought a square on the grid, you bid, you would like gambling, you would buy a square on the grid. And then wherever the cow pooped, that person who bought that square got Guess all the money, bucks. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was like, uh, that's not, that's not the hood, right? This is not the hood. And I had grown up in the suburbs of Toronto. So I, I did not really know like country life. I did not picture my dad growing up in a place like that. And to yeah. be honest, I don't even know if I knew, and again, I'm, I'm revealing all my ignorance here, but I don't even really know if I knew that in these kinds of small towns that there were black communities. I think he just always saw black people in very urban spaces. Yeah. And so it was a big jump. It's, I started to put together a whole bunch of things about my life when I saw where my dad was born. And it helped him to read the book and see that, oh, you know, I have not prepared them for this. Our, there's one part in the book where we go to his high school reunion and we walk into the house and everyone from his class is white. And I'm like, what? Who are these people? How are these your classmates? Where are the black people? You know, and there was just, I just had no clue about him, about his life. And it wasn't until we started working on the book that we really began to unpack 
some of those things and what that might mean to me. That's fascinating because it, you went through a real education then. And what, it, was it a shock to find out that life could be very unpleasant and ugly for Black people? No, I think I knew that part. That part I knew. Okay. I think I didn't understand the kinds of, the different kinds of stories that Black people had. I think there's a very limited range of stories that we get in the Black community. And a lot of them are like urban jungles, gang related, like whether it's TV or movies or whatever, that's a lot of what you see when you hear about Black America. Yeah. And so I didn't really know what a small town Black America experience would look like, what a rural Black America experience would look like. Hmm. And what was strange is growing up here in Canada, my parents would take us to this camp and the camp was like a country and Western camp. And I was like, I loved it. I mean, I loved it. We rode horses, we got cowboy hats, we wore, you know, Dean overalls. We did the whole, it was part of who we were every summer. My dad would speak at this camp and we would go there and my dad had predominantly white friends and it was a weird thing, right? It was weird when we got older and we're trying, I was trying to figure out what kinds of friends I should have or what that might look like. And I'm looking to my mom and my dad and they have all white friends. And I, right. I didn't right. really understand. And when I went to his hometown and I saw his classmates, the town, I was like, oh, oh, this is why this was comfortable for you. This is why this, this came naturally to you. This is why, you know, a lot of things started to make more sense. And I think I would have maybe asked different questions or maybe asked some questions because I don't even think I was asking questions until around the time like my grandmother passed away when I was 14. You know, it's weird. I'm, I'm put in mind of uh, O.J. Simpson. He didn't deal with it at all. I think he considered himself, if not white, he said, I'm O.J. I'm not black. I'm not white. I'm O.J. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think that in my own personal experience, what I've come to understand, I can't speak for all black people or all black Americans. But I think when you're Black and you're from a legacy of, that's rooted in slavery, so, and in, in particular where you can't connect yourself to a particular country. Like mm -hmm. I think if you're Black and you're born in Nigeria, or you're born in Ghana, there's a very different Black experience there. Even mm -hmm. if you're Black and you're from the Caribbean, even though there is that legacy of slavery there as well, I think it's different because I think you can connect yourself to a place and a land that is for all intents and purposes yours. I think when you're a Black American, and I'll, I'll say for me as a Black Canadian, there is a sense of lost, <laughs> lostness, mm. and a sense of loss, L-O-S-S, -S, in the sense that like, I did not feel like being, uh, I was truly Canadian. I did not feel like when people said Canadian or Canada, that they were thinking about someone like me. And I think in the States, you see that as well. You see this, like the all American is usually like this, you know, white football playing boy and, you know, the cheerleader girl. Like there's this very sense of Americana, of Canadiana that black, brown, indigenous bodies don't automatically occupy. It's why we're so often asked, where are you from? Because there's a sense that you actually are from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting when you're black, Canadian, black American, you really aren't from somewhere else. And the somewhere else you're from, you can't identify because you were stolen from that place. Yeah. Your ancestors were stolen. So I think there's this like, okay, I'm not American. I'm not, I don't, I don't know. I just want to be American or I just want to be Canadian. And for me, from the time I was 14 till about the time I was 30, there was like a constant wrestle with 
whether I was proud to be black or ashamed to be black, whether I wanted to call myself black or African Canadian or African American or some combination of all those things. And so even the book was very much me trying to decide like, what do I put my foot on? Who am I? Where do I belong? Where are my people? What does that look like? And so I think when you see OJ, when you see my dad questioning those things and wrestling with those, whether it's like in the words that are used or in the people that they spend time with, it's because there's such a, a lack of variety of options being presented and discussed. And so it's sort of like, well, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be like, when you say black, you mean this. And so I don't want to be that. So I'm just OJ or I'm just Chuck or I'm just whatever. What we're trying, what's happening now, what I hope is happening is just like a wider version of blackness is happening. And, and that's what I would like to see happen is just a, a deeper, richer, fuller version, vision of blackness so that you can say black, be proud, and also accept the complicated things that come with that. Yeah, it's sort of a one-dimensional monolithic view of yeah. things, isn't it? I mean, it's funny, TV is a really great place for people to like picture or imagine. I mean, I think growing up, you see thousands of white characters in all different kinds of roles. They're the, the star player on the football team, mm -hmm. they're the criminal, they're the uh, they're the drug dealer, but they're also the, the police officer, they're the president, they're the principal, they're in so many different roles, men, women, all over the place. And so you don't have trouble picturing a really heroic white figure and a really difficult, problematic, dark white figure. But in the Black community, there are so few roles and so little representation. And I would say 99% of them are, you know, your drug dealers, your criminals, you're the sidekick, little where you are the star the superhero very few yeah. where you're you know a nerd or you know all these things or rural cowboys right and so you have we all have this very narrow narrow perspective i think on the black community that i don't even necessarily blame people for you know when people can't see beyond certain representations i don't necessarily blame them uh, I think we have to do better in books and movies and all these sorts of things to diversify that kind of representation. But I mm -hmm. think when you're from that community, it has an extra deep problematic uh, experience because it affects the way you see yourself, whether you're proud of yourself. You know, I just posted the new headshots. My new book, Gutter Child, is coming out in January. I saw I that. With the big hair. afro, right? I have always tried to keep my curly hair as low, as calm, as settled as possible <laughs> because, you know, I just felt nervous about it. I felt nervous yeah. about what it would do, how it would look. And so it's for me, it's really just celebrating like Everything about me that defines me as a Black woman is something I, I want to be proud of. And where I'm not proud of it or where I struggle with my pride, I want to push it. I want to ask questions. I don't want to just tie my hair up in a ponytail and say that that's neater. Okay, well, I want to get into how we came to being where we are right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that wasn't such a good segue, though. It's you being proud, okay, mm -hmm. but you're not just proud. You're also annoyed <laughs> by, and here's the, here's the tweet that got us together here. Your tweet mm -hmm. thread was about a lack of representation of black people in kids publishing in Canada. Mm -hmm. That's what caught my eye. And notably, you said, I believe that a form of black racism is when you know there are gaps and you do nothing to correct it. So publishing, we have a racism problem. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's important to note that I am not great and I have not had a long history of speaking out really openly about racism or calling people out. No. And I'm actually quite new at it. I'm not uh, new and going to hide away from it. I'm new and like growing in my, in my work. But for me to say something like that, to be honest, is a bit of uh, work. And it took this kind of a moment for me to get so frustrated to use those words because I think racism is something that people, especially white people um, and non-Black people, when you talk about racism and anti-Black racism specifically, they get very itchy. That's the word I use. <laughs> Squirmish, uncomfortable. Yeah, they don't want to yeah. sit in it. So I feel like when I use those words and when I make those statements, for me, I'm at the beginning of just really pushing harder on issues that I'm, that I'm tired of, that I've been tired of for a long time, but haven't really spoken out about. Okay. And I think this moment, um, George Floyd, which I think is a culmination of, of a couple of instances, I think Ahmaud Arbery as well. And then yeah. um, there was the, I forget her name, the woman in the park, Karen in the park. Yeah. <laughs> that's Karen in the park and then George Floyd I think that sort of domino effect with those three incidences for very different reasons combined with being in a pandemic and all being kind of frozen on the same moment and the same things for the first time in my lifetime I can't I can think of um, all culminated in being like whoa <laughs> what is going on what's happening and for me, just being more specific about what the problem is as it relates specifically to Black voices. I do a lot of work on um, just diversity in general. Yeah, the fold yeah. itself. Uh, and in fact, that was a question I had. Could you tell me a bit about the fold festival and how it fits into what you just talked about? Yeah. So the fold for me came about, um, and I'll bring it back to this conversation about this moment and why that tweet came out and why I said it and why I still mean it. <laughs> um, no, that's is good. About, <laughs> why, about six years ago, uh, when my first book came out, I went around and I was told, you know, you're writing a book about your father. He's a CFL hero. He's this major figure. You're going to be invited to festivals and you're going to you know, all these things are going to happen for you just on the subject of your book. Forget like whether it's good or not. I would argue that it is also good, but that's a totally biased opinion. So, um, but at the we'll time, that was sort it. of the, yes, that was sort of the impetus was like, it's a solid person character story. And so it will be, you know, wanted. <laughs> and it wasn't, it, I wasn't invited to any festivals um, at the t first round that my book came out. Yeah. And I love literary festivals. So I was watching them. I was going to them. I was paying attention to them. And I noticed, A, the rosters were very white. And I also noticed when I went to them, the audience was very white and tended to be quite mature. I'll use the word. Nice <laughs> you know? yeah. The audience was generally 50 plus. And so I started to think like, hmm. This is a bit of a problem. And then there was something going on in the States called We Need Diverse Books, where they were pointing this out as well in the United States. And a friend wrote an article that said, you know, we have this problem in Canada. And I was like, yes, we do. And he sort of said, you know, in order to change this, we need more uh, diverse editors, more, more diverse publishing professionals, more diverse festivals. And I was like, huh. 
And I live in a town, a suburb of Toronto that does not have much tourism. Um, it's really like 20 to 30 minutes from most places in Toronto. And like most people in Toronto have never been to Brampton. And so I decided to start a literary festival that would focus on underrepresented storytellers and that would specialize in that and would attract people from all over to come and, and see them speak. And so I've been doing that for five years. It's been hugely successful um, by all accounts, growing. Has it been easy? Uh, easy, no. I mean, the first two or three years financially was exhausting to yeah. secure funding, to get sponsors, to sort of keep my own work life alive, and then also to have a staff. Um, but this, at this point in our life, in our journey, our fifth anniversary just happened. I have two staff, so there's three of us working full time, a phenomenal board, and really just a lot of excitement about what's coming up ahead. Some great sponsors that have been with us from the beginning and that yeah. continue to, to support us. I want to give a shout out to Audible and Penguin Random House for that in particular. And there's some others that have come along, but, but those two in particular from the start. Um, and then some great grants. So, so side note, but what that what that's done is I've been paying a lot of attention to diversity in general in publishing. Yeah. And in this particular moment, what it gave me was an opportunity to talk specifically about blackness in publishing and black people, black stories in publishing. Not I, people of color, black. Black, yeah. specifically, yeah. yeah. Okay. Of course, Black people cover other intersections, uh, LGBTQ, disabled. And so like looking at all of those Black stories and what's happening. And for me, that's where I wanted to draw some attention because I actually noticed some really troubling statistics, some really troubling trends that I was seeing, particularly as it related to Black people, that were um, just nobody's paying attention. And that, that tweet that I sent out where I said, I said publishing is racist, essentially, is that people often think of racism as an active effort. I'm, you're racist because you say racist things, because you, you do racist things, you create racist work. That is racism. Yeah, it's but overt. Really, specifically anti-Black racism is also a passive act. It's a lack of, it's a not doing something, um, especially when you know that that works for other communities. So for example, anyone who reads books will generally talk about how they read books when they were children. And they'll talk about the books that meant something to them. Maybe they read Charlotte's Web, or maybe they read, you know, I, I Love You Forever, or The Cat in the Hat, or all these things. Yeah. And then they progressed into different books and other books. And I know for me, the first time I read a book by a Black author and, met, and then met that author was in university. And it was life-changing. I read the book. I saw myself. There were moments that I could like specifically identify feeling the same way. And it was such a wild experience. I mm. loved books. I had read all kinds of books and I had enjoyed them. I had enjoyed traveling to different worlds and different time periods. But that experience of seeing yourself and identifying is mm. so powerful in a different way. And I think every reader needs both. Every reader needs to be able to see other people and learn from them and also see themselves and recognize their value and their power. And we know that that makes, reading makes for really strong character. It, it, it helps shape identity. It helps create space. Um, and so when you don't see yourself, I feel that is a form of racism. That is a form of uh, exclusion. And when publishers continuously put out 
work that excludes Black voices and Black stories, I feel like that's an active way that we disadvantage Black folks and Black people in the community. We know the benefits of reading both socially yeah. and education-wise and all these sorts of things. So when you remove the possibility or the opportunity, the easily available opportunity to really have that moment where you're like, yes, I can do this. That's me. I really think that's a form of, of racism. It's like kids, I imagine the kid might say, well, where am I? Yes. And well, and I don't even think you say, where am I? Like, cause I think that's the, that's part of it too. Part of it is you just don't think you belong there. So it's not yeah. even a question of like, where am I? I'm not good enough to be there. Yeah. And I think you maybe just don't connect with the material. So you think like, well, maybe I'm not a reader. Maybe yeah. I, I should be a musician because like, that's where I see my community. And sure. you yeah. start to distance yourself from books and you start to um, just feel like books are boring. Like that's a, a lot of people will say books are boring. And I always say, I think it's because you haven't found the right book. And yeah. there was a quote yeah. I posted recently that said, you know, privilege is, is not having to open more than two books without finding yourself or seeing yourself or hearing your, your, a voice that, that represents you. And yeah. I think that's it, you know? So what about statistics? You mentioned mm -hmm. statistics and evidence. You know, one of the things that I was most impressed about with uh, Rennie Edo Lodge, who's, who wrote the book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Mm -hmm. I interviewed her last year. And as I say, what impressed me probably the most was her, her grasp of historical perspective and the stats and evidence that she brought to the table. Mm -hmm. And uh, she basically said that she would lack credibility if all she did was talk about her own personal experience and anecdotal experience of her friends. So have you been able to dig up any stats on black and visible minority presence in Canadian publishing? Or is it just that obvious that there aren't the people there? So that's a, that's a pretty good statistic. Yeah, it's interesting. When you get into statistics, it there's a couple of layers that have to be explored. And there's a couple of questions that I'm always interested in, act, in asking. Um, but I will point to, there was um, a study uh, that was posted in the Toronto Star that was conducted by Deborah Dundas in particular in relation to uh, diversity in kids' books. Yeah. And the study was really interesting because it broke down uh, the number of picture books, middle grade and young adult books by the number of books and also the number of characters and then the representation of those characters. And what was interesting for me in that breakdown is, you know, there was uh, I'll do picture books for an example. There was 241 picture books with 258 characters because some books have more than one main character. Yeah. 90 of those characters were white. 74 were people of color. 31 black, 25 indigenous, uh, East Asian 11, South Asian 7. And then animals were 72. So there's like a very interesting breakdown of like people yeah. using animals over people of color. Those are pretty good statistics, though, in terms of like representing the proportional numbers. Yes. So and that's what she talked about. And that's what a lot of people will just be like, well, that is yeah. fine. We're doing fine. We're representative. Yeah. We're proportional. It's great. For me, I'm more interested in the economics and the people who are profiting off those stories. Not just that those stories exist, but yeah. that those stories are being written and that the authors who are being supported and funded and creating careers 
also proportionately represent those communities. And what she found is that that's not the case, that large amounts of stories that are being published about Black voices, Indigenous voices, are still being written by white authors. So there's a discrepancy for me um, in the in the economics of writers and creators that I find really problematic. And that I'm, I am very interested in the deep, deep work of diversity. So a lot of people are sort of saying, well, just paint the colors on the books, give people different colors and yeah. everything's fine. And it's not. And I will say it makes a difference as a black person. It makes a difference to see a book and meet that author and know that they are also from the community that you're from. I'm very used to meeting, uh, to knowing white writers who are writing black stories. That's cultural appropriation. So you don't have a problem with the fact that it's happening. You just have a problem with the fact that black people should be represented in the publishing world with their work. I don't believe in telling people what they can and can't write. So right. I will say that. I don't believe in that. I have opinions about it, but I don't believe it's my job to say you can and you can't write this. I will tell you I don't think you should, or I don't like that. I don't think it's your place or whatever. Yeah, but it's okay it's, to, to dare to, to write outside oh, your own I think we all have period. to write, stretch outside of our lives. I'm, I'm interested in the question of like, now that these stories have become more popular or now that people are interested in them, that there are people writing them. I think that's a bit of like very opportunistic. And I think yeah. I have questions about it. Yeah. I also, for me, I go back to publishing and I go back to publishers and say, what is your, do you care about these matters, about the economics in your industry? Do you care about black authors and black creators? So basically what we're, we're doing here is we are separating racial representation on the page from representation in the office and yeah the way i separate it is who is who's making money off whose stories that's the big question for me and you think this whole thing basically is like it's an exploitation of the fact that a lot of people are interested in this topic now yeah so there was a publisher i'll use a different example that's not from the black community but there was a publisher recently who published a book by a white writer about indigenous communities and then paired them with an indigenous illustrator. And so no one's gonna know that it was an indigenous author that created it because the illustrator is indigenous. Yeah. And for me, I have questions about like, what would it have looked like because you published that story, you're not then publishing a story by an indigenous writer. So you yeah. created, there's such like a limited amount of space. And so when you do that, you feed the industry, you tell people in li libraries and teachers, this is a good book for you to have in your school but it hasn't been approved by the indigenous community. It hasn't been written by someone who's lived that experience. And now yeah. that author is profiting off that community without being a part of it. So I just, I ethically, when it comes to the economics of it, that's where my problem is. And I have a mm -hmm. problem if publishers are saying we want to do differently, we want to do better. And then they don't actually do the work of figuring out the whole machine, not just what comes out at the front end, but who's making yep. the money on the back end how yeah. careers are being built. There are whole authors who have made careers out of writing stories about black people and they're not black. Those stories fill schools and are used as like, this is a great example of a black story and diversifying the conversation. And then the authors brought in and they don't have any lived experience to speak yeah. about. And I will yeah. tell you a high school student who reads that story and then meets, there's a, there's a moment, there is something that happens. <laughs> and I really, I know I, I do a lot of school visits 
And there is something strange that happens after my school visits where a group of like black girls will always come up to me and just hover. They just hover and they don't have any questions. They don't know what they want to ask. And I did the exact same thing when I met my first black author. There's just this, like, I want to, I want to be like you. I want to understand how you did this. I want to create, I want to do this that, that is really important for black students to have. And yeah. in Canada, where I'm from, there's a real, uh, there's some challenges in our school boards and anti-Black racism. And I really believe that books and some of the conversations that we can have around books uh, with authors are really powerful ways to start to open up the conversation between students and teachers and administrators. Could you call out these white writers who are writing Black stories? <laughs> no, I will not do that. I'm not going to no, do that. No, but they should be, No. So here's the thing that happens for, for people like me who call out somebody like that. And this is, I just have no energy for it. Uh, right. If I call out somebody for doing it, uh, it, it becomes news in some cases. It becomes, you know, all the fans of that author come to my Twitter account and come to my, and, and ask me to defend and explain and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't think it's right. I have issues with it, but I also don't have the energy to fight that fight. I just don't. And yeah. I don't think... Yeah. Honestly, when I go on Twitter and I make claims and statements, when I challenge people, I often subtweet because I have work to do. <laughs> and that is not actually <laughs> the work that I have space to do. I created a festival to highlight authors that I think people should pay attention to. I create opportunities within that festival to highlight voices that I think are important. And I'm not interested in calling people out and shaming people about their work. I'm more interested in asking publishers to be more thoughtful and to do better work. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think there is space for those writers to write incredible stories and make, you know, honestly, a lot of money. I don't think they have to be filling up the space that um, librarians, teachers, parents are looking for in terms of Black stories, Indigenous stories, et cetera. Um, and I, is there I, a lot I don't... of this that goes on, though, Jail? Can you get a grip on it? Yeah. So, for example, I recently received a catalog from a publisher in Canada. There were, I want to say, maybe 500 books in this catalog, because it was not just what they were publishing this year, it's what they published historically. Uh, from, if I recall, there were about six books with Black girls in particular. I don't think there were any Black girls on the Six books with Black people on the cover. That goes against that Toronto Star thing you were talking about. It also included adult texts and it was also like way, like it that wasn't just, back. that okay. book was 2018. So this was yeah. going back multiple years. So six of the books were black stories. One was written by a black person. The other five were all white people writing a story about a black Muslim girl or writing a story about a black girl who goes to see her grandmother, I think. There was all these stories. And I just thought it was so strange for me to see that to see so little black stories and then to see all the black stories that were there. Because if I'm a teacher and I'm like, Ooh, I need some, some black stories for my school, for my class. I'm just going to pick the ones where there's a black girl on the cover. Yeah. And as a result, I'm not going to necessarily go and do the research. Is that author black or white? No. I'm not. That's just facts. And then when I see another book or another publisher who, you know, it's a black story. I'm going to be like, well, I spent all my budget. You know, I've, I fill out, and that's the way for me, the economics continue to create disparity. Yeah. Um, they yeah. continue to create a void where um, black authors are not getting paid. 
and I know obviously it's easy for me to speak of, um, I appreciate what you mentioned about only speaking about my community, but it's also true of other communities as well and mm. um, other groups. Disabled so, community is this a lot. <laughs> People writing stories about disabled characters who have no experience with disability and yeah. So I, I certainly can see like when, when a, an industry is studied or a sector, when you look at the prison mm -hmm. system and the judicial system, you just have to look at the prison population to see that something is really, really bad here and mm -hmm. something that's, is actively being practiced or prejudice, discrimination is being practiced. It's not so easy in the publishing sector though. Yeah, it's not easy. And it takes, it's, there's many layers involved. For sure it exists as systematic racism, do you think? Yes, for in sure. Here's another example. So we regularly, for Fold Kids, go around looking for a diverse range of voices. And there's certain voices that are very difficult to find. It is yeah. very difficult to find books by men of color, for example. And that's men of all colors. And also there tends to be, especially in the Black community, uh, the books tend to be more based on history and less about fiction, fantasy, imagination, those kinds of elements. What I also noticed for me is I've been finding a lot of self-published Black POC authors, children's book authors. So there are creators, there are people making books, there are people buying these books. So even these self-published authors are, you know, they're selling copies of their books, hand sells like to the friends, to the schools. Some of them are connected with communities that as soon as they put out a new book, other people buy it, but they're not getting traditionally published. And what that means is every time they put out a book, they're spending thousands of dollars on their illustrator, on printing it, on distribution. They're just yeah, but, but they're also making, they're making the 90% that the publisher makes, though, if they do well. Yes, but they don't have any spread, right? They can only go as far as their, their hands and their feet can literally take them. Yeah. And they don't have that kind of support, which means they're very rarely getting into big bookstores. And there's yeah. all these other kinds of obstacles. And with every book they're putting, they're going in debt to make money back, right? They're, yeah. And it's a very different experience than being supported by a publisher and having like essentially very little risk, right? I write yeah. my story, I give it to you, you make no, sure that's, it goes that's, out. Well, yeah, that's the whole thing about the publisher. They're taking the risk. But there's, there's a challenge, I think, when most of the publishing industry is white even yeah. when you're pitching a book, there's a way in which you have to hope that they understand your story, that they understand your community enough, and that yeah. they understand the needs of the community enough that how it can sell. And I'll give you an example. Yolanda Marshall is a self-published writer. She's written a book a year for the past five years, all based on the Caribbean community. One of her books is called A Black Cake for Santa. Now, if you're from the Caribbean community, you know right away what black cake is. It's like, it's rum cake. It's like, just, it's traditional. You use it, everybody knows it. You use it all the time. But if you're submitting that to a publisher, uh, and most publishers will admit most of their editorial staff in children's publishing is white, do you even know what black cake is? Do you know not only what it is, but do you understand how meaningful it is to the community? Mm -hmm. Do you understand why the community would know right away why that would be a cool Christmas book? You know, that kind of thing. She wrote another one called um, uh, something about a sorrel stand, which is another like Caribbean African drink that you have to explain <laughs> 
parts of your culture, your background, your community in order to even get in the door, in order to even get an opportunity to be published. So I think for me, there's a lot of obstacles in publishing that create systemic barriers. Um, I was talking with Larry Hill, Lawrence Hill, author of uh, Book of Negroes, and we we're talking about the fact that we've never had editors or even agents who are Black. And so while we're writing stories that are rooted in our Black experience, that are rooted in the Black community, most times our editors, our agents, they haven't read the books that would yeah. help shape our work, our stories in a particular way. Now, our editors are amazing. We both said we love our editors, we love our agents, but there is this, a, a, a lack, there is a, a disadvantage, I think, that we, we face as well. And so for me, I think it's really important when I make these calls out and when I make these claims, it's because I think these issues need to be an ongoing conversation. I think diversity and inclusion is a long-term work. You know, when we at Fold, we have not arrived. We are not fully inclusive. We are not doing everything right. And every year we have to do better and do more. And so I say that to publishers as well. You have to do better and do more. A lot of times right now we're seeing publishers sort of like react like yeah. and to fix things so that everybody's like, oh, look what they're doing and put out press releases. We're making this happen. We're doing yeah, this. Or Ian, I, Ian Wilson's coming out with a book of essays. And, Ian Williams. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. He's coming out with a book of essays. And I think some of those things are really good. I know Jim yeah. Petter also has a, a, a book coming out in response to this called Black Public Joy. And I think there's really great things about those moments and those books and those stories. Mm. But I also don't believe that that solves, and I don't think Ian or, and definitely not Jay, would say that that solves the problems that are no. inherent and built into the system. Let me have a quick take or give a quick take on <laughs> Canada's population, okay? Because yeah. Vancouver is like 40, 50% Asian. Mm -hmm. Toronto about 50% visible minority and Montreal about 30%. But outside of these centers, it's nowhere near that. So it, on average, I think we're looking at about 20% for all of Canada. Mm -hmm. So would, would you think it's reasonable for, for Canadian? The thing is Canadian publishers are often, they're just dinky little operations. Most of them, like there's 200 or so publishers in Canada and then there's the big five. So it's, I think it's more difficult for smaller little companies to practice what you're suggesting or am I wrong? So first of all, I think it's important for me, I believe really strongly. Um, and this, ties into what I'll say in answer to that. I think it's really important to understand that black stories, stories by indigenous folks, stories by marginalized people in general are more important in communities that don't have direct access regularly to people from those communities. So right. it is really important for me to have a, lot, a wide access to indigenous stories because where I'm from, we don't have a, strong, a large indigenous population. We have a strong sure. indigenous population, but just not large. I think First of all, it's important to understand the history of systemic racism in Canada and that books are a really important way to help push us forward, to raise mm -hmm. children that are more thoughtful, more mindful. Mm -hmm. And so we need these books because we haven't had these books and because regardless of the population, these stories help shape a better Canada, a better yeah. culture. Yeah, and better, then people. In better people. And then in going back to publishers, I think publishers have to decide what they value and what's important. I don't believe everybody needs to publish, you know, 
75% writers of color for the next 10 years. Like I'm not yeah. in that position. You mean but just I to do, kind of catch up, you mean? But I do think, you know, the example of the publisher I gave uses a slogan around social justice and diversity. And if that's your slogan, if that's your value system, and yeah. you're not equitably and economically supporting black writers, brown writers, non-white writers, you are actually not just living up to your word, <laughs> frankly. And so other, I think finish. I think it's really important for publishers to ask themselves what they value and to think about how their organizations and the books that they publish reflect those values. And the last thing I'll say about it is Groundwood Books was the publisher who published my children's book, The Stone Thrower. Yeah. And the woman, um, Sheila Berry, was a phenomenal person. And she came out to fold before she passed away and shared about the fact that in order to do better, she actually created statistical, like numerical statistics that they wanted to meet because they valued a diversity of voices. And so for me, it's about what do you actually value? What do you stand by? What's your mantra? And are you meeting that? Or are, and this is the question we ask the most at the fold, who's missing? Do you need to ask yourself who's missing and actively work to correct that? Okay. What about the reader who says, I do not care at all about what color the author is. I just want to read good work. I don't care about what color they are. I think that's a fair statement. I think that a lot of people sort of operate on that as their premise. I think it's sort of like, I don't care where I get my where I get my pencils or my pens. I don't care where I shop. I'll shop at, you know, a big bookstore or, or an independent, I don't care. And what a lot of people are saying, you know, maybe you should care about companies that are Canadian, that about Indies, about, you know, supporting the economy in a particular way rather than supporting billionaires. So yeah. for me, it's like, yes, there are going to be people that say, I don't care. <laughs> That's just a fact of life. My concern is that there are lots of people who care and don't know how to do better because they don't know how to, shop for books more thoughtfully they don't know how to find the books that they actually want and so i'm more interested in the people who do care i guess i'm not really interested in convincing people who don't care to care because that's exhausting and so are you are you going to put together a kind of a guide on how to do that kind of shopping so what we're doing what i do at fold and this is where i talk about it, it's long range right the work we're doing to do better in this area is long range and for me it has to come from multiple ends so on one end at Fold, we offer free writing opportunities and pitching opportunities at the festival so that writers from marginalized communities can gain access to editors and agents and get feedback on ideas for projects, right? Because some of the arguments publishers make is, well, I don't know where to find these stories. And mm. so one of our goals was to tackle that problem by creating training, access and opportunities for new writers to create good, solid work that would be more successful with publishers. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, it's to constantly challenge publishers through the festival and through our like partnerships and arrangements so that they have a deeper understanding of own voices, what that looks like, how to get it right. And so that every year they're doing more and more and they're doing better and better. I think there are publishers who have been directly affected by the work of Fold and are doing things better and are trying each year to do more. Some of them are getting it. Some of them aren't. Some of them are slower. It's fine. I'm more concerned about the ones who just say, I don't care. I'm going to continue to economically support disproportionate number of white writers and ignore communities that we know 
um, people are looking for, are looking to hear from. So would you be happy with a publishing house that says, okay, visible minorities in Canada is about 20% of the population, or it represents 20% of the population. 20% of my writers are visible minorities, and 20% of my content is reflecting that life experience. Is that what your goal is? Um, I think for me, my goal first is to is to get people to value it, to understand the importance of these things, right. and then to build steps to do better. I think it would depend on what they had done before. I don't think necessarily numbers games are really messy. So when you say something like 25% of the population is this and 10% is this, and so we only need to support this many authors this year, and yeah. maybe that's the measurement we're going to use every year. It's a bit problematic because you have disproportionately in the past supported um, other groups. And so I think for me, I'd be looking at, you know, why, why that number? Why are you thinking through that number? What's your long-term plan? I, I'm always interested in a both ends approach. Just like I said, I'm working from the writer's perspective and also from the publishing perspective. I think publishers need to look at the acquisition level, what they want to acquire and why and in what numbers and be really messy and awkward about those conversations. And then I think they also need to work from the organizational perspective and say, how do I not just bring these authors in, but then support them in their careers thoughtfully? Yeah. So like I said, none of my solutions are going to be those things that like go into a press release and they happen in a year and it's fine. It's this ongoing work, ongoing question of who's missing and how do I support them at every level so that the industry is more diverse. And here's the thing that people will, people will call me like socialist and like, blah, blah, blah. This is so <laughs> hokey. Da, 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 da. Yeah. I'm also interested in the economics of selling more books. And if yeah. you've been ignoring a particular segment of the population, you're actually not making as much money as you can. So I'm also interested in like, how do we get more people reading and more people buying books? And I think part of it is getting everyone to feel like their voices are represented. So I'm not just interested in it from a hipster granola save the world concept. I, yeah. I, as an author, am deeply interested in having people love books, buy books, support books. And I think if you keep producing the same things to feed to the same audience and to support the same people, we're not actually expanding the industry. We're mm. not actually growing thoughtfully and we're limiting ourselves and you're limiting authors in the end. Well, you're right. Of course. I mean, if the thing is, if a, a publisher goes out and recruits some black authors and their sales bomb, they shouldn't be criticized for kicking them out, but mm -hmm. they should replace them with other interesting new voices. Yeah. I mean, I think that the whole issue of sales and marketing is a big question too, because one of the things is I would say people haven't acquired black stories and mar stories by authors from marginalized communities, queer stories, trans stories, because mm. they're worried about how they'll sell. They're worried about how they'll do. And there's often not that representation within the organization to be mm. able to speak to and address that. How do we market this book? How do we tailor this book so that it's not only sold to the community it represents, but so that the larger community buys it as well. And so that's another thing that happens. There's this measurement stick of sales that's used without the thoughtfulness created into the marketing plan and the marketing proposal. There's a publisher right now who publishes, you know, a hundred books a year, I would say, and their social media is terrible. And I have told them it's terrible. <laughs> you need to do better. And they just say, it's fine. Why is it terrible? Uh, they're rarely on it. 
the only social media they do, like for Twitter, for example, all they put out there is like, buy this book, buy this book. There's no like engagement, conversation, retweeting. Like there's, there's none of that. There's not a personality behind it because someone just goes on it and checks it once a day. So they're not, um, doing, this, they're not doing this for their, their, uh, their black visible minority I would say they're they're not supporting any of their authors, but when you talk about black authors, you know, I I believe that in this last two months, three months, there has been an influx in sales of of books by black authors about black stories. A lot of attention has been drawn. And so people were looking for those kinds of stories. And I went to this publisher because they were not sharing any of their black authors. They weren't showing, you know, these are the black stories that we have. And this is, I have also pointed out before this point that their social media is terrible. And for me, this is the recklessness of being a publisher. When you publish a book, you carry a writer's career. And Mm. so I'm interested. And this to me is, it's not just their black writers. It's their white writers. It's whoever is, they are not caring for their careers. And if they they don't, they're going to lose those authors. They may be, but the issue for some publishers in Canada is that they get funding from the, the government and that oh. the funding is based on how many books they put out, not how much, how well those books do necessarily. And so it's just a backwards system sometimes. And I think it's important for people to recognize I'm interested in selling books, making money, <laughs> like not me, like just books making money, authors making money. And when we yeah. think about that, we also want to think about the equity of like, who are the authors who are making the money and for what stories? Okay. I'm just going to sort of wind down with some feedback from some publishers, okay? <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure, Nigel. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here's a quote. I have seen the changing faces of publishing students over the past 20 years. It's changing because the second generation of immigrants usually tilts toward the arts. Our last four hires have been non-WASP. Um, there's lots of funny things in that statement. Non-WASP is an interesting one, but it's <laughs> a particular kind of category that I'm like, well, Non-WASP is very open. Um, I do believe that publishing uh, and publishing students, especially if you're located in the GTA, are naturally going to change. I mean, if your publishing program and you're in the GTA and your your program is still all white, I mean, you're doing a recruitment problem (laughs) to me because GTA is just extremely rich with color so yeah. you it's, it's, kind uh, of willful. it's willful isn't it if there yes. if it is colorful yes so uh, i it doesn't surprise me but i i i know i know from working with people of color who are in publishing yeah that the support the support once you have a job is not there that there is a lot of challenges systemically when you're working in an organization as one of a few or one of the only people of color and that yeah. they're still facing challenges, pushing conversations and challenging ways of thinking that um, are old school, as I would say. I do not believe that there is anti-black racism in publishing. <laughs> that phrasing implies something active, something purposeful. Are there sufficient people of a variety of racial and ethnic status working in publishing in Canada? I would say no, there are not. But I also hasten to point out that the 10 full-time employees of our company over the 20 years 
30% have been visible minorities, a term I don't like much. In terms of the interns we've taken on, probably 50%. Our list may not have as many writers of color as I would like, but it hasn't been from lack of trying. Ha! So I'll take on two parts of that moderately ridiculous statement. Um, I think, first of all, I talked about anti-Black racism is not just an active practice, it's a passive practice. Yeah. White supremacy is a system and you're either working against it or working within it, for it, or benefiting from it. And I think that uh, a lot of publishers benefit from white supremacy, from upholding stories by white voices that are proven, that have this track record that they can measure and that they it can say. It reduces their like, risk, doesn't it, Jill? It reduces their risk. And it's familiar, it's safe, it's all those things. And that's, yeah. that's how. And they'll say things like, we didn't get pitched those stories or we didn't find the right stories or whatever. Uh, I also wanted to address the last part, which I forget. Well, let me just oh, lack it. of trying. That was what it was. Not sure. for lack of trying. I believe publishers think that they've tried if they have an open call or if they say, uh, we'd like more stories by black writers on Twitter and on Facebook. Yeah. And that that is their definition of trying. So an example is when I put that post up there about anti-black racism, there was a publisher that said, we want more black voices, send them to us, send them. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk to somebody like Yolanda Marshall, when you talk to um, other self-published writers, they'll often talk about, you know, Yolanda got really heartful, difficult rejection letters for her writing and it, for her books. And it wasn't about the writing. She is uh, works in the writing profession and field it's not about the quality of her work it was about yeah. the themes and the stories and it was about the fact that there's not an audience there's no place like people won't get it all these kinds of things that's the responses that publishers will send which is kind of ridiculous right now given given the, the climate but even right now what publishers will say is like really <laughs> they'll say things like we're not accepting these kinds of books because we only want these kinds of books and it might be black books, but it'll be like black nonfiction or it'll be like uh, black books about blackness. It can't be a book by a black writer where they're writing about fantasy or a book by a biracial author that, author that they might not even know is black. Uh, yeah. That's about friendship or love. It's like we want this because we want to prove that we've filled this marker. And it really shows me that there's still there's just a deep lack of understanding about the topic of race and racism like that quote that you just read for me demonstrates someone who i'm going to guess is in a significant position of power and privilege who either decides on a lot of things or decides on how money will be used on a number of things and to me just really doesn't understand race racism and in a variety of contexts and yet they're the ones that are supposed to be making it right and fixing the problem and it, that's why we have a systemic problem. I mean, that quote for me is perfect. Okay. Evidence let's, 101. <laughs> let's, let's, see how, let's see how this quote goes down. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I hate having to resort to statistics and pointing to people who've worked for us by their identities. I have mm -hmm. never and would never hire a person because of race. And that is a blanket statement. Every single person I've hired, I did because they exhibited intelligence and diligence and proved to be good at their jobs. 
No one was hired because of a personal form of racial advancement program of my devising. I really don't think of people that way. And I detest the tokenism of hiring a person for qualities other than those necessary to successful employment. You know what? I would agree with some of those statements, but I would also agree, think that it shows a lack of understanding about the issue. So what I'll say about that quote is, I hate the idea of statistics and like trying to, you know, you know, when you talk about 20% of the population is this and 30% is this, and I hate those conversations. I hate them. <laughs> you know, when we do the festival, it's like, you know, do we have 20% of this community? And I hate them. Yeah. I do find them to be really helpful places, though, to understand who's missing. So yeah. Yeah. I don't necessarily use them to say, I'm going to hire, I'm going to have this many authors from this community and this many authors from this community. But I will look at previous festivals and say, you know, 70% of our authors, 80, 90% of our authors were between the ages of 20 and 40. How do we create the space for authors who are 40, 50, 60 plus? And how do we, how do we include them in our next festival? We had, you know, 5% of our authors were disabled. How do we increase that to 10? Like, I think this is a, and I like asking those questions because it leads us to really interesting people and places and it's led us to really interesting moments. So I get the resistance. I get the trickiness of it, but I do think those conversations are really important to have. And I think when you throw your hands up and say, eh, I hate it. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. I'm not going to do it. You're ignoring the problem. And it's largely why we've ended up in this situation to begin with. The other thing I want to pull out from that statement is that they said that they nev would never hire a person because of race and that they only want to consider the things necessary for successful employment. And what I would argue, and I think people often ignore when we have these conversations about hiring a black person or a brown person or whatever, yeah. is that being a person of color brings with it a skill set that is increasingly important. Hiring a person with disabilities brings a skill set that is increasingly important and it actually benefits your industry to have more people from different perspectives and to have more people who have lived those experiences to contribute to the ideas that are selling books. If you bring in a black person who understands the issues relating to the black community, you are able likely to sell books in a different way, to create new pathways and new innovations. I wanna give an example that's really uh, practical. One of the authors we brought in for The Fold was an author who, his name is Rich Donovan, and he talks a lot about how disability is used in businesses to advance organizations. That when you actually think about disabled people in wheelchairs, you can actually benefit other communities. So for example, if you have a store and you make it wheelchair accessible, it's suddenly also accessible to the mom who's pushing or the dad who's pushing a baby stroller. And yeah. so innovations happen because you bring people with different skill sets. And what irritates me on the hiring level is when we just look at like uh, resumes of experience and we just look at like what school they went to and what place they interned at and what they did here and how long. And we forget the fact that when you are black in Canada, you have had to navigate multiple spaces and do what many refer to as code switching over and over. And so you've learned things and seen things in a different way. And so I've always said race, disability, all these marginalized communities, they are advantages to your organization. Mm, you should yeah. be wanting and searching, not some, from some sort of like 
inequitable. I want to hire someone because I want to fix a problem, but because you should recognize you're missing that conversation in your marketing room, in your acquisitions room, and that that's going to add to the kinds of books you can get and the ways that your group is going to be able to think. So I just think it's an interestingly lazy approach to hiring. Well, the bottom line is the bottom line. The bottom line is, you know, if you hire people, then you check and see if the, your, your profit goes up or down. Well, and I mean, we had a hiring process recently, and I had so many people of color apply for the job, and so many people at the end of the day to choose from that brought different things and different skills that I didn't have to ask myself, like, do I hire this person or this person because they're black or brown or because they're this or this? It was just, I had a wealth of choices of qualified, strong individuals. And Mm -hmm. that's what you should be looking at in your hiring field. If you're posting jobs and only white folks or white males or white women or straight white women, whatever, are applying, you should be asking yourself what kind of people your organization's attracting and what kind of people your organization is serving and whether you're missing something. You know, I've seen postings where I'm like, I know I would be the only black person there and I don't want to work in a place like that. You know, I just, I don't want to be like that all the time. Mm. And this is one thing that I always say to organizations, you will have a challenge ahead of you if you've built your organization with a particular premise and mindset and now you're trying to shift. It's going to take time and you're going to have to really believe in it because it's going to take a long time before people really think it's a safe place, a good place to work if they're a member of a marginalized community. You know, one of the things that the NFL is doing is they're not insisting on quotas, but what they are doing, and I think it's mandatory, is that when there's a job opening up, you have to bring in at least one or two black candidates to apply for the job. But they have to be within that group that's considered at least. What What do you think about that? I'm not a human resources expert, so I'm getting into a field that's like well outside my scope in a lot of ways. But I will say these conversations are very uncomfortable for black people and white people alike and other races as well. So, for example, I'll use, I'll use a very uh, a public example of um, Ben Mulrudy when yeah. he left the job at eTalk. He left the job and said, you know, I'm stepping down because I want to give my spot to a person of color. And yeah. I thought, ew, <laughs> like, ew, you know, yeah. because... Well, it wasn't it because his wife was in trouble or something? There was controversies with his wife, but I see a lot of things happening where people are sort of saying, you know, hire people of color, replace, you know, your white folks with these folks. And I, I think it's a lot trickier than that because I think in that situation, when a person of color comes in, they're aware that they've been generously granted this role because Ben Mulroney was gracious enough to step down. And they're also then the victim or the in the position where all of Ben Mulroney's supporters are like, I would rather have Ben. He should never have stepped down. And you come into a losing battle. Like, I think we have to be really mindful of like what our goals are in these situations and what the best way to achieve them is. And I don't think it benefits the black community or any marginalized community to do this kind of like overt tokenism that's sort of happening right now. I just, I I don't necessarily agree with it. I think you have to ask what your organization is missing and how you can best work to improve that over time and how you can best foster relationships. Like there's some publishers that are doing a lot of work with schools, um, getting into schools with a mixed community to say like, this is a career that you can go into. This is a job that you can have. 
I think it's also about giving, you know, your, your authors from marginalized, your staff from marginalized communities support and mentorship. I think it's about thoughtfully thinking about what you want in your space and how that can benefit others. I'm a big believer that every challenge provides an opportunity to innovate for everyone. So COVID's a perfect example. It's kind of sucked, you know, the industry has changed. But we had to go online with our festival and did it all virtually. Yeah, you did a great job, by the way. I, I attended you. some of them. You can still go online, thefoldcanada.org, and see our events. Okay. Um, and I think it provided opportunities for innovation. I think these conversations about race and racism and anti-Black racism provide a lot of opportunity for innovation in the industry. Mm. I think that's what people of color and people from marginalized communities often bring is these new ideas and innovations that haven't been tapped into because they haven't been a part of the conversation. Yeah. And so I, for all these quotes that you've shared of people sort of- I've got a few more. I, I've got a few more. I here. would say kind of defensively resisting the issue. I would say, you know what guys, lay back, relax, invest in this conversation because good things could happen. You have more? Yeah. Oh, great, great. Okay, I'm, uh, I'll quickly run through a few more. They're pushing back is what they're doing. They're pushing back, they are. Yeah. And that's- Okay, so here we go. I would be horrified if any person of color who I hired were to ever think even for a moment that their hire was based on racial considerations. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I think if, I think when people say that they're assuming that the person of color was not qualified and that they therefore got the job because they were a person of color and not because they were actually qualified for the job. And what I believe is when you have these job applications, the people of color are as qualified as some of the other people who are applying and you're not considering what different things they bring to the table, what conversations they might uh, contribute and the ways uh, that they might uh, be a better candidate, honestly, just a straight up better candidate as a result. Okay, here we go with the literary prizes uh, response. Oh, I like this one. If the the literary world is racist, you might want to look at the list of winners of this of the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Mm-hmm. Now, they've cited eleven out of twenty eight winners are persons of color. I think in the last ten years, it's even it's even a higher percentage than that. But again, uh, okay. So first of all, what do you think about that? The fact is th- that uh, that there have been a lot of people of color winning literary prizes in the last decade or so? Um, I don't see how that does disproves racism in publishing. (laughs) I mean, I think it means that the juries are enjoying those books. I mean, I don't think my issue isn't that great books by people of color are not being produced. My issue isn't even in a lot of ways that there's not I don't think it's even true in all cases that there's not enough books by writers of color that are being produced. I I'm think that that question isn't, isn't relevant. To the no, I think the point is that you would hope that the, the juries would have enough integrity to look at the text and read them for what they are rather than who wrote them. Well, and I think that what's interesting is that that's happening in better ways and that juries tend to be more diverse than publishing companies. So yeah. Yeah. The fact that I think it's actually proving their point opposite. I think the other thing too that we haven't mentioned, so many books are not that good. Like 90% of books are are not good. 
<laughs> even when they've gone through all sorts of editing processes and marketing and whatever. I think too, like, again, I'm so much more interested in like the, the deeper conversations about these things. So I think a lot of what comes down to the success of books, a lot of it is marketing. Prizes play a role in some areas, but a lot of it is marketing, how much visibility a book has. I don't think publishing personally is the best at managing money and like doing things with a real like, let's do these things thoughtfully with the idea of like making money. I don't think they've always figured out that code personally, whatever. Um, but I think, and I think that's part of, of the challenge is that even when, when white writers are hearing these conversations and they get really anxious because they're like, I'm not making a lot of money either and I'm struggling too and, and all these things. I think there's a much bigger conversation for publishing um, aside from just diversity and marginalization. It's like, how do we make our, our industry grow? How do we um, do things that make more sense? How do we save time? How do we become more effective? There's all these questions. And part of me wonders if, innovations in hiring might actually create innovations in the industry, would might yep. actually create better systems. From the reader's perspective, how do they produce more great works of literature and yeah. writing? And I think that great works is also subjective. So it's like different kinds of great works, right? And also it's from like, what, what you think is great is gonna be clearly different from what I think is great. There are people who love romance, there are people who love crime, love thrillers, but again, those are industries that are particularly white and particularly lacking in, in diversity. And so you have this one industry that needs work in a whole different area than, for example, literary fiction, which I actually think is doing a better job of balancing out representation across the board, including, you know, trans, disabled, LGBTQ storytellers. Okay, so wrapping it up, what do we have to do? Well, who's we? Are we talking about readers? Are we talking about writers? Are we talking about publishing professionals? Well, we were focused on the publishing industry. So okay. both on and off the page, what has to be done and how can it be done? So I think for publishing professionals, they have to think about things almost like a sandwich or an Oreo cookie, however you want to think about it, whichever's tastier to you. I think they have to take good care of the outside edges so how they acquire stories what kind of processes are they do they have in place and who have they been attracting through those process and who they've been successful with and who's missing how can they make that process more uh, mindful more thoughtful more equitable is really the word that we want to use and then I also have to think that on the other side of that, they want to think about the structure of their organization. What do they have in place that's working? And where are their problems, gaps, etc.? And what kinds of money might they need or shape-shifting might they need in order to make the middle part support both ends, aka bring in more money, but also support more people. And so it's a long conversation that I think they have to be willing to engage in over a long period of time. I'm not, I'm not a like press release solution kind of person. It's like, what can they do on both of those ends so that in between we gradually have a more diverse publishing industry, we gradually have more and better books, and we also have more people buying and reading great books. Okay. And you think this is a, a huge problem or a medium problem or not that big of a problem? 
Um, I think it varies. I think in children's books, it's a huge problem because I think, you know, I didn't talk about this before, but children are only reading children's books for a particular window of time. And so for me, there's a kind of urgency in children's and YA books to fix it, to figure it out, to fix it and get it right. Because we already are losing readers from having not had access to the kinds of books and the kinds of stories that really provide a wide range for all kids all kids. This is not just, um, there's a lack of black storytellers. There's a lack of books about black stories, but there's also a lack of other communities in great numbers as well. And I think unless you start having those conversations, we miss another generation of readers. We miss another generation of really inspired writers who are working at it from an early age. So I think it's quite urgent in children's professions. I think when it comes to publishing in general, I think we have an urgent issue in that we are competing for entertainment space. We're competing with Netflix and we're competing with movies. And the pandemic has actually been an interesting moment where books have been given like a new life, right? You can't go to the movies, but you can read a book. And so it's been an opportunity, I think, for publishing that we want to figure out and take advantage of. And I think we want to do it more thoughtfully. Um, so I think for publishing in general, the urgency for me is to just do the work better, more effectively. And I think, I believe doing the work better and more effectively is about identifying some of these gaps, these problems, these systemic barriers. Because like the example I gave with, with Rich Donovan and talking about disability advantaging a business, I think if you can figure out what you're doing wrong and who's missing, you will affect your bottom line in positive ways if, you, if you're smart about it and if you care mm -hmm. about it. I think if you're just doing it for show and you're just like, well, I'm not racist and I'm not hiring somebody because they're POC because that would be lame. I think you have other issues going on. <laughs> um, so I think it's about really being a business person that cares about the bottom line and, and sees what's missing as an opportunity to improve and advance the industry as a whole. Publishers will like to hear that. Well, let me just say, I think it was Toni Morrison, that, among others, who said that the, the best book to write is the one that you, you don't see out there and you really need and want to, to have that book out there. And it seems to me that what you've done with Fold and your, your efforts is exactly that and uh, it's so impressive and uh, I wish you all the success with it uh, in the coming years. Thanks I, I really appreciate that statement because I think yeah I think it's true I've been really excited to see when we put on fold events people who love books finding books only at fold that they hadn't seen anywhere else and that they loved I mean that's the best compliment that's the best demonstration for me that a, we have been doing things wrong in publishing in some ways, and B, that what we're doing at Fold is making a difference. I know when I wrote Gutter Child, um, which comes out in January, uh, I was writing it for my 14-year-old self because okay. at 14, I was reading Civil War romance novels. And as a Black girl, I thought this was great. It was great books, great literature. But I wasn't paying attention to the fact that in those stories, I was a slave. My ancestors were not the hero and heroine. They weren't the love story being shared. And so I think it's really important for writers, if I can say, to encourage them, especially writers from marginalized communities, but to write the story that you needed and that you you want to see and not for anybody else not for a community or against another community but just into the space that needs to be filled very good jill thank you so much for taking the time to talk it's been a real pleasure thanks for having me bye for now bye